0: All right, well, good evening, L.C.M. Good evening. It's just been about 5,000 miles since we saw each other last. Tonight is going to be a real treat. The inspired word of God is, in fact, divinely breathed onto the page. But it's also in literary form. The author's vocabulary, the author's cultural forces the geographical setting that the author is in, and their placement within time, meaning history, all play a role in the literary form of the word that God is divinely inspiring them to convey to the people. You may remember that we taught you these things during ministry training one. It was in our hermeneutics class. I have a slide to show you. It might bring back some memories. God gives a revelation and that is a beautiful and exciting thing but it is given to an audience in a specific place at a specific time and it has universal appeal and application to mankind but it's required of us that we understand the original audience and how they understood it as a filter so that you can engage with it properly. So, There were a few questions that we taught you to ask. What would the original audience have been uh, thinking when they first heard it? What would the original audience have been feeling when they first heard it? Would it have caused the original audience to have reconsidered positions that they held? And now knowing that, do I need to reconsider positions that I hold? All biblical interpretation would be much better if we started in this place. All too often we impose our own paradigms, our own social mores, our own theological constructs onto the text, and they weren't present in the time that it was being conveyed. Factors that you learn to consider were things like language. Does it make a difference what language is being spoken? Yes.
1: Yes.
0: Cultural <laughs> forces, that's been a big one in Esther. The cultural forces at play within the Persian Empire are entirely different than you perceived them to be before we started the study. Geography. How important is geography when understanding the Battle of Marathon or Thermopylae or the naval battle at Salamis? And time in history. When you think of Persians, you don't tend to think of a worldwide empire that is multicultural, that uh, considers truth and generosity its highest terms. In fact, we've been affected by literary assassination that makes us believe that they were evil tyrants and the Greeks were noble, despite the fact that they were wrestling naked and braiding each other's hair. (laughs) In our first two sessions, we have thoroughly addressed the bias of the Western approach to the book of Esther with you. So we're not going to do that again. Your understanding of the Persian Empire has probably been revolutionized. In fact, if it hasn't been revolutionized, then you're either not being honest with yourself, or you haven't been listening very well. Additionally, we've examined geographical issues within the story. We've also delved deeply into the placement of these events within history. We did these things in an effort for you to understand how the original audience understood the story. And thus, better gain an understanding of the practical applications that you are being led through a spirit of holiness to make in your own lives. Mm. It wouldn't make sense for us to go through all that work again. After all, it's recorded and all of the notes are posted online. I don't know very many ministries that do that. We do want to review some of the practical applications that you are able to make after you close the cultural gap. That's a That's what we were aiming at the whole time and why we taught history lessons to you. So let's begin
2: in session one. We said some things back in session one a couple weeks ago that we put on a slide for you today so that you could see them visually. I'll take you through this. It says, if you find the book of Esther controversial, it will be because you are wrestling with three things. And three things at the very least. So, At a bare minimum, there's going to be at least three things you're wrestling with on a very personal level throughout our studies together. Number one, the effect of the order in a home on society at large. Anybody been wrestling with that? (laughs) If you haven't, then
0: you've been asleep for four hours of teaching.
2: (laughs) Number two, the presence and motivations for blind antisemitism semitism Among Gentile nations. And number three. The demonstrable but hidden hand of Adonai. Working out his plan in all generations. Every other supposed controversy. Is simply a red herring. To distract you from the practical implementations. Of these principles in your daily lives. It actually looks like we are succeeding. In the first objective.
3: Amen.
2: Praise God for that. And we assure you that the other two, those are coming as well. You just wait. (laughs) On the note of the first objective, we know that your understanding of the biblical mandate for shalom, it's growing, especially as we're going through Esther together. We're seeing signs of the necessary struggle to reflect God's pattern in your lives. This is one of the many hidden blessings contained within the book of Esther.
4: All right, so you should remember that Esther means secret or hidden, Mm -hmm. and it means secret from the word Sathar. Now, it's beautiful to think that what was hidden to you is now being revealed. Amen. Amen. That is true, even if it has provoked the necessary struggle in your home to obtain what God says must be present Hallelujah. in
0: your home. Hey, somebody just say necessary. Necessary struggle. 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 Yeah. It's
4: necessary. Amen. It's gotta happen. Listen to Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to who? Little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Now, we genuinely believe that the Father loves to show us his treasures that have been obscured over time through false presumptions. Now, as we endeavor to peel back and remove those errors, we can all be confident that this book will continue to inform our lives in beautiful and practical ways. Amen.
2: So through both chapters 1 and
5: 2, We've seen the practical implications of Proverbs 31. Yeah. Specifically of a Proverbs 31 woman in various and profound ways. Mm-hmm. We have a slide for you. You oh, got to oh, yeah. remember this chiastic structure. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's fine. So Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10, mm-hmm. going all the way through 31, is a chiastic structure that has parallels A to A, B to B. Mm-hmm. But the one unparalleled truth is H. Mm-hmm. Public respect for the husband should be the result of a God-fearing wife's work. Come on. Amen. Now, you oh, remember from cool. last week, this is what the Bible defines as beautiful. Yeah.
4: It's true.
5: Before you started to engage with the book of Esther, you likely would have had all the same false presumptions as the Bible teachers all around us regarding Esther and its context. You know that those teachers are juvenile <coughs> in their presentation and their understanding of the text itself. You may have even realized that you have to mature in your own understanding. One of the main goals of our first session together was for you to see the effects of even one home mm-hmm. out of Shalom on a society at large. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So in Esther one seventeen, said, "For the queen's conduct will become known." To all the women. Wow. And they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before it. But she would not come. Mm -hmm. You know that the seven wise men who knew the times, the law, and justice understood the effects of Vashti's lack of respect for God's order and what it would do to the society as a whole. You've wrestled with the thought that even these pagan Persians understood that this behavior was a threat to society at large. Come on. Now, you've also come to the conclusion, at least I surely hope that you have, that it's even more important for us as Christian husbands and Christian wives to understand that without proper shalom, the very kingdom of God's advancement in your life and the lives around you is at risk. Well, yeah. Yeah. You're good students. We're sure that you've presented yourselves with the Calve Comer argument on this subject. If one household out of Shalom has an effect on the whole of pagan society, mm. then how much more does one household out of Shalom have an effect on this whole church body? Oh. It's profound. Yeah. This is an important truth that is usually missed in the book of Esther. Now, there's a passage in Corinthians that we've revisited several times, and we're going to do it again. Amen. Because we need to grab hold of this in our souls, not just our intellects.
2: Amen. This passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 9. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is New Testament, church. The book of Esther displays Mordecai's wisdom and counsel as the primary reason for Esther's shining actions. And conversely, Mordecai would have been lost to obscurity were it not for Esther's implementation of his advice. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful revelation. The two actually worked together Woo, to let's bring it together. Come on, oh, they worked together to bring about God's will on earth, and both of them are glorious for it. Yeah. Now, as a church body, we are learning that our lives must reflect this exact truth. It's true in the pastoral and elder families, yeah. and it's also true in your families as well. A husband must lead. In a way that displays the glory and image of God. Amen. Say amen, husbands. Amen. 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 All right. Wives, get ready. A woman must reflect her husband. Come on, amen. girls.
1: Amen.
2: This Oh, is a, a better oh, amen for yeah, that. Please. One more time. Amen. Amen. And you single girls?
1: Amen.
2: Yes. <laughs> this is a universal truth displayed clearly in the book of Esther. And it will become evident in the lives of all serious believers that hear and apply this teaching. So
4: you've also come to understand that the book of Esther is similar to the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts records that the acts of the Holy Spirit who is working behind the scenes and manifesting in actions of the, is manifesting in the actions of the bride of Christ. <laughs> Similarly, the hand of God is voiced in the advice and counsel of Mordecai who is always behind the scenes... And the visible working of God is displayed in the actions of who? Esther. Esther. No matter how amazing a particular leader in this church is, what we are looking for is that he is reflected in his spouse. Yeah, Yeah, this is and always has been the way God's working is seen on earth. So in short, it's how we display the same workings as in the book of Acts. Now some of the wives in this room are learning to make adjustments necessary for this to be true of them. Yeah. And all the husbands in all this room, all the husbands. Amen. All the husbands in this room are learning that they must make their adjustment to be a proper reflection of the image of God yeah. or else they are handicap- handicapping their <laughs> wives from the beginning of the process. Amen. In our first session,
5: you were made to wrestle with an application that is all too often missed because cultural bias has kept you from seeing it. Mm. This was from a misunderstanding, both of Persian culture as well as contamination in our own culture, yeah. your culture. <laughs> our next slide is from session one. It says Vashti was beautiful, presumably loved by Xerxes, and refused to honor her king who was looking to honor her before the world. Yeah. All Christians should think deeply upon this subject and endeavor to make personal and practical applications. The mere fact that so many are incapable of rightly interpreting this passage is proof that the problem is pandemic in nature. <laughs> That's yep.
2: an actual real pandemic, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>.
5: <laughs> if Xerxes was trying to appeal to some sensual desire in his audience, it is doubtful that he would have used his wife and definitely would not be so low as to put the symbol of his reign and authority on her head. Yeah. And besides... Persians, in their culture, don't do those kinds of things.
0: We learned together that shalom is a simple evaluation regarding the authority placed over you, whether you're male or female. If the authority is asking you to sin against God, then you are obliged to resist. However, if the request is not a sin against God, then you are required to obey enthusiastically. <laughs> This brings glory to God. Yes. yes, The whole process begins with a concept conveyed in Esther 1, 21 through 22. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to, be, to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue. That every man should be ruler over his own household. We also learn that this is not just a Persian command. Mm. In fact, we found the same thing in this really obscure,
2: hard-to-find book (laughs) called Titus. (laughs) (laughs) Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 3, says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled and pure. pure To be busy at home. To be kind. Yeah. And to be subject to their husbands. Yeah. So that no one will malign the word of God. Wow. Now we're quite certain by your reactions to... Session one, that these were things that you knew, but had never really seen in the book of Esther before.
1: That's true.
2: True. Moreover, while you did know them, you now have a better understanding of your need to repent awesome. and make practical application within your own home. Yeah. Very true. Doing so will ensure that you bring glory to God. And we know that that is what you want tonight. Yes. Failing to do so will ensure that you are banished from the work of God. So clearly, a lot is at stake here. And our God would not have brought us to these conclusions if he was not going to help us to do it
4: as well. Come on, help us, Lord! Wasn't session one amazing? Let's talk about session two. Perhaps the most profound practical application that was uncovered in our second session was the background for Peter's statement in 1 Peter 3. Yeah. Did you guys enjoy that last week? Oh, yeah. Yes. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, picking up in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Yeah. Well, this has been, it's so good. <laughs> How many times have you read the book of Peter and just kind of skipped over that without actually engaging the beauty that's there? But while this has been plainly printed in our Bibles for our entire lifetimes, it's become clear that Peter is reflecting on the story of Esther and Xerxes. Wow. Now, we joked with you regarding your conversations during the week where we heard you postulating and pondering exactly what Esther did. ...to capture the favor of Xerxes. That was funny. Now, as uh, titillating and tantalizing as those discussions were... ...you all came to the wrong conclusion. Yeah. And that is telling of your actual views on biblical beauty. You came to
5: understand that in chapter 2... ...the playing field was leveled in sexual experience. They were all virgins. The playing field was leveled in sexual physical beauty... They were all beautiful and hand-picked. The playing field was leveled in sexual equipment, as in they were all anatomical women. Praise they were God not for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. women of the year in our current setting. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, the beauty treatments nice. were the same for every single one of them. Yeah. The level of compliance on the part of the woman was the same. He was the king. The basics of the physical activities were the same. If he could imagine it, they did it. The difference was the biblical beauty of Esther that flowed from the unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. Yeah. She asked for nothing to take with her. She did not manipulate or pre-plan anything. Mm. She trusted her God, and that was beautiful even to an unbeliever, yeah. just as First Peter says that it is. Yeah. And Proverbs 31 taught us a thousand years before that about this concept. We're
0: going to throw that slide back on the screen. Yeah. No, not the right slide. But uh, we can, there you go. There's one addition to it. This is what the Bible defines as beautiful. When a woman shows public respect for her husband, when her actions bring him public respect, well, there's nothing magical about it. All of your conversation about magical reproductive organs was wrong. <laughs> she had something far more profound and beautiful than that. It's beautiful when, when when a woman actually applies the word of God. Yeah. Mm. That's what's beautiful.
2: Amen.
0: Now, if you have not thought that or you look in the mirror and you don't believe that, stop agreeing against God and get on the same page with him. Amen. There's no reason for us to reteach all of those beautiful points again. instead, we're just going to read the amplified version, which we withheld from you up until this point of 1 Peter three one through two. Now, this is the printed amplified version. We didn't amplify it. This is the work of scholars, not uh, pastors in storefronts. In like manner, you married women. <laughs> Be submissive to your own husbands. Subordinate yourselves as being secondary to and dependent upon them. And adapt yourselves to them. So that even if any do not obey the word of God, they may be won over, not by discussion, but by the godly lives of their wives. When they observe the pure and modest way in which you conduct yourselves, Together with your reverence for your husband, you are to feel for him all that reverence includes. To respect, to defer to, revere him, to honor, esteem, appreciate, prize, and in the human sense, to adore him. That is to admire, praise, and be devoted to, deeply love, and enjoy your husband. It was exciting to see so many of you come to the realization that if you want to be crowned with favor as Esther was, you need to get rid of fear, manipulation, and planning so that you could spend your time in prayer obtaining the beauty of a woman that actually trusts Adonai. Then he will make you beautiful to your husband. Come
2: on. What
0: an incredible... If the world could get that... Now, if the worldly church could get that revelation, uh, your lives would look so much different.
2: That's it. Something else that we learned in session two, we have a slide. This says, Xerxes was not a failure. When studying Thermopylae, it is too easy to think of Xerxes' failure to take Greece as his defining moment and the beginnings of the collapse of his rule. Yet, such a theory could not be farther from the truth. Xerxes reigned for another 15 years yeah. after returning home from Greece. And he did much of his best work in that time. Oh, he had Miss by him. While he may not have taken Greece, he did successfully sack Athens, and his consuming focus was subsequently broken. Instead, he found a new campaign, yeah. now of architecture and transformed the city of Persepolis into the jewel of the Persian Empire. You probably did not know this before you heard us teach it. It may seem like a mere historical observation, but we assure you, that's not the case. Xerxes quit fighting battles with Vashti, and her behavior was banished. Amen. Xerxes quit fighting battles abroad, and he flourished with Esther, in an unprecedented time of building and expansion truthfully many of you will follow in his footsteps not physically speaking but spiritually speaking your constant strife with Vashti it's going to come to an end in the name of Jesus the beautiful Esther in your spouse will appear and you will begin An unprecedented time of building the kingdom. Xerxes was not a failure, and neither will you be a failure.
4: Come on, church! So, another misconception that nearly everybody walked in the room with was regarding the view that Xerxes' collection of virgins was merely carnal. This is an affront to the teachings of Jesus and displays the lack of understanding of Eastern culture as well as the culture of the Bible. It's true. You learned that there were genuine similarities between Esther 2 and the parable that Jesus told about the ten virgins. Now in Esther 2, you examined the investment and beauty treatments of the virgins. It was a total of how many months? Twelve. 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 Twelve months. That is six months of anointing and six months of perfuming. You learned how important it is that you prepare yourself for the service of your king and husband. You learn that the level of importance that you place on this is in direct proportion to your view of his grandeur. You also removed your carnal presumptions that Esther 2 was simply about sexual gratification so that you could see the search for the unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. Amen. That has always been rare on earth and all too often is rare in this room. It's Ooh. true. You notice that Jesus himself told a parable It's a single groom and ten virgins. It's in Matthew 25, picking up in verse 5. The
5: bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Sir Christian, we tell you that you are presently in the investment period. Yeah. For the preparation period. It is time to work on both the anointing. And the perfuming. Yeah. You can't borrow
2: someone else's. You have to do it. That's right. Yeah. You might think of the anointing as the empowerment of the
5: Spirit, and the perfuming as the deeds and lifestyle of Christ. Your husband. The groom of all word. creation will, in fact, have a bride that is royal. Revelation 21 2 says this I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. For her husband. Who is the bride dressed for? Her husband. husband. Dressed for her husband. She did not decide what to wear. She was clothed in the garments provided for her by the king. Or in other words, the righteous acts prepared in advance for her to do so that she was ready when she met him. Come
0: on, somebody. That's good. good. This led us to review the marriage timeline of Xerxes in the text. And there we saw similarities with the final week of Daniel, the final week of seven years. And in parallel, we saw events of Jesus' wedding to the church. So the timeline of Xerxes and his bride starts in the year 486 B.C. And this is when Xerxes begins his reign. Of course, Esther 1 tells us that in the third year of his reign, he holds a banquet. The banquet is 180 days. That means that from the time he began his reign to the time that we're dealing with the Vashti event, the wife that will not come to him, the queen that is not fit, we have exactly 42 months, exactly 1260 days. That are to ring a bell for you from both the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel because it is a rebellion within the marriage covenant of Christ. That means that three and a half years into... The uh, final week of Daniel, part of what is happening is those that do not come to the Lord are being dismissed. They will not be a part of the true bride. Of course, in the sixth year of Xerxes reign, there was a battle with Greece. Xerxes had engaged in a great war with an emerging world empire that threatened his kingdom. This is analogous to another Middle Eastern empire that you heard about all through Daniel <laughs> that rises to power and nobody can wage war against the beast. But the end result of Daniel of Xerxes' seventh year, which was 479, as recorded in Esther 2.16, is that he did obtain a bride and he put a crown on her head and he held a banquet for her after seven years. Amen. Come on, that's truly profound. Yeah. Yeah. That whole subject warrants more of your study, but it's not our purpose tonight. As we move into new material for this evening, our other points of controversy regarding anti-Semitism and the hidden hand of Yahweh will come into focus. But you're also going to see one of the things that we love the most about the book of Esther. Do you want to hear it?
2: Yes. Yes. It actually takes on the form of a genuinely riveting story with all of the traditional elements and it is profoundly inundated with deep spiritual messages that are meant to inform and direct our walk with the Lord. Tonight you will see the element of the essential conflict introduced into the story. Yeah, what's a story without a conflict? Yeah, got to be present in there chapters 1 and 2. They were good. They gave us the necessary background and introduction uh, into our primary protagonists in Mordecai and Esther. But in chapter 3, we're going to see the emergence of the antagonist. His name is Haman. Yeah, you can boo him. None of our time has been wasted. You are all well positioned to understand the plot, the subplot, as well as the forthcoming plot twists. Yes. This is sure to be an advantage for you as we move forward in this book.
4: So we'd like to draw your attention to a subplot issue throughout the book that is overlooked by nearly everyone. In the same way that most Westerners don't have an appreciation for the cultural forces at work within the Persian Empire, and so they read into the text salacious and nefarious motives, there is also an underappreciation for the reverence and role of the law in the lives of the Jewish people. The fact that specific laws are not quoted or prayers are not recorded is actually a testament to the essential nature of the law within the lives of Jews during the story. So to make this a little easier to understand,
5: you were writing a story about Americans, which we all get. <laughs> and you place the events of the story on the 4th of July. You would expect your audience to be familiar enough with the themes embedded into American culture to know what our motivators are during a Fourth of July weekend. For that reason, you might be able to make a reference to loud noises without having to specify that they were specifically from fireworks, or to sumptuous aromas without having to reference barbecue directly. When you understand the role of the Torah in the lives of the Jewish people during this period, There are details that the author would not have to clearly delineate to the audience because they're so embedded in the culture that it would already be understood by the audience.
0: So often we're told that there's not prayer in it, there's not prophecy in it, there's not enough religious activity in the book of Esther. I think it's actually a testament to how deeply concerned they were with the law and what a part of their society it was at this point that they don't have to point out what all of their motivators are. That's right. The same way that we don't have to tell you when you hear loud bangs on New Year's Eve that it is New Year's Eve right. because sure. you know what happens at New Year's Eve. <laughs> Consider this from Deuteronomy 32. We're going to try to get you to engage a little bit with the track record of Israel so that you understand what we mean. Deuteronomy 32 in verse 46. He said to them, Take a heart, take to heart, All the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Wow. By them, you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Now, Israel had these words that were conveyed to Moses. 1,000 years before the book of Esther takes place. That's a long time to contemplate something. Israel had already experienced the terrible consequences of not taking the law as seriously as they should have. They were very well aware that they were in captivity for not obeying God's word. That causes you to do one of two things either take the word of God more seriously or continue to try to pretend it doesn't exist. The negative effects of this upon true Israelites living in Gentile captivity are hard for Westerners to grasp. In other words, if you walk outside every day and a Gentile occupier gets to tell you what to do and how to live, and you know that the land of Israel is where you're supposed to be and you're not, Because you didn't take the word of God seriously. Those negative effects cause profound effects on the Israelites.
2: Let's go to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42 conversely you're going to hear about some positive effects upon true Israelites living in captivity. Isaiah 42 verses 18 through 21. Hear you deaf. Look you blind and see? Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness, to make his law great and glorious. Come on. Amen. Israel actually had these words that we just read for about 240 years before the book of Esther takes place. (laughs) The true Israelites were repentant in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They did learn to see the law of God as great and glorious. If you don't
0: believe that, read Ezra and Nehemiah. Look at the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. They understood what caused captivity, and they were determined to never
2: let that happen again. It's not just for Israel. This is something that all believers would be wise to do. Elevate the law as great and glorious like it actually is. The positive effects of this upon true Israelites living in Gentile captivity are hard for Western Christians to grasp.
4: And we're going to keep helping you with this. Listen to Psalm 119, verses 18 through 20. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. Yeah! Yeah! What kind of things? Wonderful! Wonderful. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Now, most Bible expositors see these words as having been written quite late in Israel's history. Many even believe that they were written by Ezra around the time of, guess who? Esther. -er. During this period, the Jewish people had unprecedented reforms in their devotion as a society to the law, and it is reflected in the words, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Yes, Lord. Now the nation had come to recognize that every captivity and hardship poured upon them by the gentiles was directly attributable to not having had proper reverence and loyalty to the law. That's a good word. Now this kind of attitude man it produced men like Daniel, Daniel. Come on. Come on. Hananiah, Mishael, mm. Mordecai, and even a woman named Esther. Amen. Does that help y'all with the historical context
0: a little bit? Yes. So we've got one more for you. According to
5: the notes in the LXX, this next psalm that we're going to read together was instituted by David and read on the fourth day of the week every single week at the time that the LXX was translated. This is Psalm 94.
0: So David wrote the psalm, but during the time the LXX, around 300, is being translated, the subscript there says to be read on the fourth day of the week, every week. In other words, they learn their lesson.
5: (laughs) Listen to this. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. Come on. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness and all the upright in heart will follow him. Saints, if you reflect on the words in the psalm, we trust that you will see that it contains the basic lessons that an Israelite would have also gleaned from the book of Esther. As we pray this evening, remember that while Mordecai and Esther are our protagonists in the narrative, the true and beautiful hero is the law of God in this story. The fact that no prophecy or obvious supernatural miracle takes place Emphasizes the reliance on what they already had been given—the law of God that was in their possession. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah come on. That's good. This would not have to have been explained to a Jewish audience any more than the themes of a Fourth of July party would have had to be explained to us. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know what we should do now, Ray? You should stand to your feet like the mighty man of God you are and pray with enthusiasm because
2: you have a bride, but you also
0: get to be the bride of Christ.
2: Yeah, come on now. Abba, father, for you.
6: Attack. We want to know what you're trying to say. Why we want to leave your war today? We thank you, Lord. We praise you, God. We come to you, Father, in the mighty name
7: of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
0: Alright. Now we are not going to waste your time, but we are going to demand your attention during the next hour and 18 minutes. That beautiful sexy grandma. Sexy because of those godly actions that flow out of her life and the respect she brings her husband at the public gate. She's going to read Esther 3, 1 through 15 to us, and we're going to tune in.
8: After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, some of Hamadatha the Agite. Nailed it! Elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pray, pay him honor. Mm. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not Mm. kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Mm. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pure, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadotha the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king, satraps, the governors in the various providences, and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own reign. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's providences with the order to destroy kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered.
0: Wow. (laughs) Wow, All right, so I got to drive a bunch here lately. I listened to Thursday's message. It sounded like y'all got slapped around a little bit. I listened to Sunday's message. It looked like y'all got challenged and encouraged during that one. I don't know what's wrong with y'all. You look depressed. Rouse yourself. You are sons and daughters of God. We're going to win. If you happen to have found a few areas you're not winning in, you can celebrate that because you now know where to focus your efforts. What we're not going to do is coast through this meeting. We invested an awful lot of time, a lot of treasure, a little throw up on the side of the roads, a lot of sacrifice of sleep to get here and to do this. So, I'm asking you, engage with me. If you fall asleep, I am coming to your seat. Because I promise you, I didn't, you have not lost as much sleep as me lately. Okay? We're going to pick up in the first verse. And by pick up, I mean you're going to pick up your attitude. After these events, King Xerxes honored
6: Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher.
0: ...than all of the other nobles. Come on. So I looked at the United Bible Society's handbook on Esther. Here's what it says in reference to this verse. The time referred to by the words after these things is indefinite. And it may refer to a few days or a few years. The prepositional phrase is basically a discourse feature that the author uses to signal that he is at the beginning of the next part of the story. Thank you. That's what after these events means. (laughs) King Xerxes promoted Haman. The king's act in honoring Haman is expressed three ways by the author. First, that the king made great or exalted him. Secondly, that he lifted up or elevated him. And thirdly, that he gave him a seat above all his colleagues. Undoubtedly a reference to the first chapter and 14th verse where the princes... Who sat first in the kingdom are named. Now, the reason that we're bringing this up is that the text is—it's is, not entirely clear regarding which events caused Haman to rise in authority and prominence. Pro- authority and prominence. But given the fact that the most vivid detail of our story from Esther two twenty-one through twenty-three is a conspiracy to assassinate Xerxes. It seems most likely that Haman profited from the role of exposing uh, the conspirators. Okay? I want you to think through this for a second. What is more is that Haman would be seen in this book as having gallows erected and issuing decrees involving death or execution. So we think, meaning the four of us, that it's appropriate to view Haman in the light of a prosecuting attorney. What that would mean for you (laughs) is that Mordecai, who actually exposed the conspirators, was recorded in the Annals or the Chronicles of the King. But public recognition for the execution of the conspirators seemed to rest on Haman. And Mordecai went unacknowledged for a time. Mm -hmm. In our view, This makes Haman an explicit shadow and type of Satan, who also used to play the role of the prosecuting attorney.
2: That's right. And we're going to show that to you. But first, we have a slide on the meaning of Satan, or Satan, as we like to say it down here in Texas. Whatever you do, don't get Satan in the face. (laughs) As you can see from this excerpt of Easton's Bible Dictionary, Satan is commonly, the common definition for Satan is adversary or accuser, almost like a prosecuting attorney. We're going to read a reference for you from Job chapter 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 12, and we're going to be reading from the ESV. Listen to this passage. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Sounds very much like a prosecuting attorney, doesn't it? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hands. So Satan
4: went out from the presence of the Lord. So we don't have the time necessary to explain all the intricacies of this passage. But clearly, the Lord is giving some level of permission for the sifting of Job. You guys see that? So Satan's assertions are wrong and his character will be increasingly revealed as evil. But he is being used by the Lord for a specific purpose, and you will see very similar things with Haman. Now, don't misunderstand us. We're not saying that Haman is Satan. In fact, most of Satan's work in the Bible utilizes proxies. Say proxies. (laughs) Proxies. Proxies. That is what we're saying Haman is, a proxy of Satan. You may be familiar with this concept from numerous sermons that we've taught. So here's a slide from Forecasting the Seventy from June of 2020. Notice this list. On the left, we have satanic stratagems, and on the right, the proxy agents that carried it out. If you follow this chart down to number 10, you will find Haman, and his stratagem was xenophobic hatred of God's people. Very interesting. We want that to be rolling through your mind as you compare Literary elements of the text To help you have a deeper understanding But for now, we'll move to verse 2 Well, we find it
0: necessary To make one more interjection We've learned two <laughs> things at this point The first is that Haman and Satan are very closely related Both in the way they act And the way the story will be revealed The second is that it's only Prosecuting attorneys and not defense attorneys Keith, that are like the devil Laughter <laughs> The royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor
6: to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or
5: pay him honor. Ah! He won't kneel down and worship him, right?
2: Oh, yeah, that's the problem.
5: You will hear legions of commentaries and biblical authors espousing something that they just don't understand. They're misunderstanding what is happening here. As the law does not forbid Bowing in an act of honor to a public official hmm. does not forbid it. Yep. The law forbids worship, but that is not the issue here. Mm-hmm. If you look into Persian culture just a little bit, this is an act of honor when somebody is in an official office. So, in fact, we have five examples for you that are Jews bowing in honor, specifically in this kind of context. So, Abraham bowed to the sons of Had. When he negotiated with them for Sarah's grave. You can go on your own and find that in Genesis 23, verse 7. Joseph's brothers bowed before Joseph, thinking he was an Egyptian official. You can find that in Genesis 42, verse 6. David even bowed down to Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 8. Jacob and his family, they bowed down before Esau. Genesis 33, verse 3 and then 6 through 7. Jews even bowed to one another. You find that in 2 Samuel 14, verse 4. Also in 2 Samuel, chapter 18, verse 28. As this brings up a question, if you're really interacting with what is happening here. If a prohibition on bowing was not the issue, what was the issue? Well, we're glad that you asked that question. (laughs) Because the first thing you need to know is that he is an Amalekite. We're going to go to
0: Exodus together. Yeah, let's pick up in Exodus 17 in verse 8. Then you can correct the notes in your study Bible. (laughs) The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. The Amalekites attacked Israel at a place called Rephidim, which both means and implies in the original language that they were at rest. The first appearance of Joshua in all of your Bible is in reference to coming to whip the Amalekites. Ooh. He shows up to destroy the Amalekites. Yeah. Kind of like 1 John 3.8. Yeah. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Moses, as the man that the Torah was revealed to, stood on top of the hill with the staff of God in his hands as a pictorial representation of the standards of God in
2: his raised hands. Let's keep going in verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands... The Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. The difference between victory or defeat was upholding the representation of the law, yeah. which not even Moses could do by himself. Mm-hmm. He needed his friends Come on, needed somebody. His brothers, oh, yeah, yeah. to help his arms be held up so that he could hold up. The law of his
4: God. What about verse 12? When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. The way the representation of the law was upheld was in a team. Yeah. 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 But even then, Moses had to be seated on the stone or the rock which is emblematic of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Come on man. That's good. Verse 13.
5: So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Joshua and the chosen men with him prevailed in battle. Mm. Yeah. This really should make you think about Revelation 17:14. Yeah. With his called, chosen and faithful with him yeah. as he prevails. That was not the end of the issue. This is what Adonai says next in verse 14 that you need to key into.
0: Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll because we can't text it <laughs> to each other. <laughs> As something to be remembered Remember. and make sure that Joshua hears it Amen. because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Yeah. Moses built an altar and called it Yahweh, or Carlos, Yehovah is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Saints, you need to know that it was God himself that declared war on the Amalekites. And he did it in a perpetual fashion. From generation to generation for a thousand years before the book of
2: Esther was written. So let's read Deuteronomy. We're going to learn just a little bit more in Deuteronomy about why Mordecai acted the way that he did. This is Deuteronomy 25 verse 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. Mm -hmm. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, he is giving you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Wow. No Israelite was ever to forget that God had determined to wipe out all Amalekites. That the Lord determined this was a generational battle from Exodus 17 until his goal was accomplished. During the time of Esther, we've already mentioned in our introduction that there was an extraordinary reform taking place that re-emphasized the importance of taking the law with the utmost Seriousness. Church, Haman was an Amalekite. Verse 1 says, Haman, son of
4: Hamadatha the Agagite. We've got a slide for you. So Bible dictionaries that identify Haman as an Amalekite. As you can see, there is more than one thing written on this slide. Easton's, Fawcett's, all the way to Smith's Bible Dictionary. We picked seven. We picked seven. (laughs) Uh, They have Haman as an Amalekite. Now there was one Haman, the son of Amadatha, by birth, an Amalekite that used to go into the king. This is from Josephus. Now with that in mind, let's read 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, this is 1 Samuel 15 picking up in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people. Israel. So listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Yeah. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, one of the primary functions of the first king of Israel was to totally destroy all of the Amalekites. Now, in the same chapter, let's pick up in verse 7. Skipping down to verse 7.
5: Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army. Spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, Mm. Mm. the fat calves and lambs. Everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord, all that night. Mm. <laughs> While Saul shattered the Amalekites, he did not totally destroy them all. In all that belonged to them. The text has been specific. Men, women, children, infants, as well as the cattle. Most people reading Samuel assume that Agag was the only person spared and that Samuel resolved this by killing Agag at the end of However, closer reading reveals that they destroyed the despised and the weak. Haman is a descendant of one that slipped through the cracks, made yep. it out alive. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 17, it refers to other Amalekites escaping from David's hands. Wow! In fact, 400 of them. However, in David's case, it was not disobedience that caused it. They just got away. Look, as we keep reading, you begin to get implications that the story is drawing out, and it is supposed to be dramatic. It is creating a scene with an ancient enemy and with a singular hero. Let's pick up in verse 3 and read through 4. Then the royal
6: officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? (laughs) Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For
0: he had told them... He was a Jew. Uh Uh-oh. We're pretty anxious to continue our line of thought. But we feel the need to address the prevalent cowardice masquerading as theological obedience in our time. Mm -hmm. Christians that read Romans 13 and then pretend that we are to obey our government regardless of the demands that are made of us are simply cowards masquerading as obedient people. It is shocking that those same people have such little appreciation for the flow of shalom in a home. Oh, my. We perfectly obey the government, but we don't perfectly obey Christian authorities in any way. I want to remind you that the equation is pretty simple. If the authority is asking you to sin against God, then you are obliged to resist. However, if the request is not a a sin against God, then you're required to obey and do it enthusiastically. This brings glory to God. <laughs> when the authority over you is asking you to sin against God, it is incumbent upon you to disobey. Yes. This concept was once famously quoted by some Protestants as when the government forbids that which God requires or requires that which God forbids, then it is necessary for us to practice civil disobedience.
1: Right.
0: Here is a tiny sampling of righteous civil disobedience in the word. You need to get acquainted with it because the whole world got this wrong during the COVID outbreak. Exodus 1, 15 through 22, the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, they refused to carry out Pharaoh's orders to kill the Jewish babies. Uh And they're commended for it in the book of Hebrews. It's It's a great act of faith. In Daniel 1, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refused to eat the king's food. And they were righteous in doing so. In Daniel 3, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they refused to bow down to the obelisk erected by (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. In Acts 5, 27 through 29, it puts this sentiment very, very well. I'm going to read it to you. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. By the way, the high priest and the Sanhedrin are their government. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. Look, on a personal level, we're not sure if it should ever be forgotten how cowardly some behaved during the COVID mandates. But we are willing to admit that they must be forgiven. Amen. It's important that we pick up our textual theme again. The author of Esther is intimately aware of the law concerning the Amalekites and also knows that there is a very real and present tension because of Saul's failure to obey God. The book of Esther monopolizes this tension to illustrate the nobility of Mordecai's actions.
2: So, at this point, we need to highlight Mordecai's genealogy one more time and refresh you on that from chapter 2. This is verses 5 and 6. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. We told you at that time that the naming of Mordecai's tribe as Benjamin and Shimei and Kish being among his forefathers seemed very intentional to us. You guys remember that from last week? Yes. We think that the prominent members of Mordecai's genealogy are being named for a reason and are not necessarily his direct, immediate lineage. This is common in the biblical literature and can be seen in the geneal- genealogical records of Jesus himself. In our view, the point of the list of ancestors is to draw your attention to the events of those men's lives In preparation for what is coming in the story. And not for the specific identification of which descendant entered Babylon on a certain day. In other words, when you read Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, the point of that passage is that this line went into captivity that's the point that Mordecai's lineage went into captivity you can now appreciate why this was such an important detail the line that went into captivity is now getting the opportunity to redeem an unfaithful action in their forefathers come on yeah. come on that's good you should see Mordecai's actions as immensely faithful filled, and even redemptive when considering his lineage that's named in the word. Saul's great failure was in patience and the refusal to execute Agag. Mordecai, though, he's displaying incredible patience, and he's determined to deal rightly with the descendant of Agag. It's not that Mordecai won't
0: bow to another man is that Mordecai will not bow and show honor to a man that is not supposed to exist on the earth because God is at war with him from generation to generation. Mordecai will not pretend like this man is supposed to hold this office because God had determined war against all of the Amalekites. And Mordecai's own ancestry is part of the reason that he still exists. So Mordecai will not be a part of continuing that.
4: Wow. So you guys want to look at another one? Yes. Yes. This is 2 Samuel 16, picking up in verse 5. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimeh, son of Jared. And he cursed him as he came out. So again, the reason that the author mention, mentions Shimei is because he was a member of the first royal family in Israel. But again, there's a very negative association with him that the author of Esther intentionally leaves unresolved until later in the book. Yeah. Come on. But we're simply unable to restrain ourselves and can't help but give it away <laughs> from the beginning. Yep. Yeah. Shimei's great failure was disloyalty to the sitting king. Mm-hmm. But Mordecai will display incredible respect for the current sitting king, yeah. Xerxes.
0: Redeem Engage that with that for just a second. Yeah. If Haman rose to power based on your accomplishment and you were not honored, and he was, and now you're realizing he's an Amalekite and you cannot bow to him, might you have thrown a little hissy fit before King Xerxes? Oh, I know yeah. you. Yeah. You, you forget. This is, We don't have distance between us. I know you. You'd have posted it on Facebook. You'd have become a keyboard warrior. You'd, you'd have done the whole deal. Think of his patience, that he makes no mention of those things. It simply comes down to what he cannot do in his conscience, which is bow to that man. But he does not fight for the honor that he deserves, not in any way.
5: Putting the two together. Mordecai's ancestors and Saul were unwilling to wage the war of the Lord. They were not willing to carry out the Lord's commands. And his other ancestor, Shimei, or Shimei, was disloyal to the seated king. What you already know about Mordecai is that he is not willing to bow to the enemies of God. And that for a Gentile king, he already risked his own neck to save him once before and will continue to do so. Anyone reading the book of Esther from the beginning to the end that was familiar with the Tanakh would likely see the book of Esther as correcting the errors of a family line.
3: Come on. Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, that's awesome.
5: Reestablishing nobility and royalty because of character in the man. And when it reestablished this in a dynasty that was always supposed to be esteemed as mistakes are being fixed from the past. Christian? Not many of you came from truly noble stock. Perhaps the reason that you were chosen was to correct the mistakes of your forefathers, the tasks that God had for them that were left undone.
0: Which is why you probably don't want to go and submit to their direction at every holiday. Hmm. <laughs> probably why you don't want to consider to look, keep looking to them for advice. Probably why when you get married you should leave your parents' house and join to your husband. Good word. In fact, there are a lot of problems in this room that would be correct if you just engage with the book of Esther. Oh,
5: yeah. Yeah. It's a good word. We have the opportunity to bring about a redeemed family life. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life Handed down to you from your ancestors. Somebody say empty. Empty! Empty. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The very fact that you are alive and bear the same last name as your ancestors is a chance to redeem the empty way of life that was handed to you. Amen. Saul and Shimei were of royal descent, but acted in a manner that was far, far from noble. Mordecai and Esther, however, descend from their line and act in a totally noble fashion, no matter what circumstance they're put in. Whether noble or ignoble, we, as the bride of Christ, have an obligation, because of the blood that was shed for us, to be both royal and noble in our own actions. We might as well get to another aspect of Shimei, the forefather of Mordecai, and another scenario that involves refusal to
2: do something. Yeah. for
0: that? This whole book is full of refusal. And some of it is good refusal, and some of it is bad refusal. Have you considered that in the third chapter, Mordecai is refusing to bow, and we're saying it's honorable, and in the first chapter, Vashti refused to come, and that was dishonorable? Yeah, Yeah, you might want to throw away your neat little idiot's guide to Christian rule living, okay? Let's do 2 Samuel 16, starting in verse 5, for something that you may not have thought of. As King David approached bra Kareem, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shemad, son of Gera, And he cursed as he came out, as good little Christians do. He pelted David, all, and all the king's officials with stones though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. That's uh, some hootspot. Yeah, it is. As he cursed, Shimei, or Shimei, as my brothers like to say, said, Get out! Get out, you man of blood! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom, You have come to ruin because you're a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Wow, (laughs) Seems reasonable to me. (laughs) But the king said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruah? You could fill in the blank with sons of... (laughs) If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who can ask why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, who is my own flesh and blood, is trying to take my life. Mm. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. You ready? For the Lord has told him to do it. Think about the discernment that that took. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went Hmm. and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. (laughs) The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination, exhausted, exhausted. And pissed off. Okay, I added that part. (laughs) And there he refreshed himself. Look, David refused to let Abishai kill Shemek. And it's a really good thing. Because if, if he had, there never would have been Mordecai. There never would have been Esther to bring about the redemption of God's people. Now consider the other side. Consider that if Saul had killed Agag and the other Amalekites, there may have never been an evil Haman to threaten God's people. The profound implications of these two scenarios that both involve refusal to kill someone is pretty mind-boggling. Nick's going to summarize these refusals for you, but I want to just list them. All right, you ready? Vashti refused to come to the king. Saul refused to wipe out the Amalekites, starting with Agai. David refused to kill Shammai. Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. Now let's walk through a slide.
2: To refuse or not to refuse? That is the question for you tonight. As Pastor Eric said, Saul and Vashti, when they refused, they were actually wicked refusals. Vashti refusing to come to her husband, the king, and Saul refusing to wipe out the Amalekites. That was a wicked example of a refusal. But look at the right side of the screen. We have some righteous refusals there. David refusing to kill shimei That was righteous. Mordecai refusing to bow to Haman, the Amalekite. Righteous. Look at this quote. You've heard it before tonight. You need to keep hearing. It. You're going to hear it again. If the authority is asking you to sin against God, then you are obliged to resist, to refuse. However, if the request is not a sin against God, then you are required to obey enthusiastically. This brings glory to God. At the very bottom of this slide we have a passage of an example from the New testament in acts five twenty nine. peter and the other apostles replied we must obey god rather than men yeah. so payton is going
0: to take us through some things but I, I want you to get this because the whole church is warring over shalom issues some of you Husbands are juvenile, and you make shalom issues out of stupid things. Things that God never addressed, like where you would like to go eat. And then you berate your wife for not doing it. And that's because you think you married an employee and you're an idiot. Mm. Others of you, ladies in here, make refusals that are not righteous. You refuse to follow your husband's direction. You refuse to do what the Bible says you must do. So if you thought that our shalom equation was simple, we've now boiled it down to exactly three words. Is your refusal righteous? Righteous refusal, yes or no. And that's going to depend on God's will in a scenario. But if you keep refusing where God has not said you must refuse you're ruining your marriage, you're ruining your children, and you're a blight in this church. But that's not who you are. And that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen in here is we're going to learn to ask these simple questions and go straight to the word and our preferences are going to go out the window and we're going to love God's right order. And if the authority over you is acting poorly, as I often do, God will correct that authority. But... Is your refusal actually righteous? Or is it just that squealer, that pig inside of you that wants to be self-governed and self-ruled? I've heard a lot of squealing in these last few weeks at every level in our church. It's disappointing, but I am greatly encouraged because God has now identified where we're going to put the knife. And we're going to come out of this doing very, very well. Do y'all want to do well? Yes. Yes!
4: So if you want righteous refusal, you have to determine what God wants in every situation. But let's consider another historical situation involving marriage and the Benjamites from Judges 21, picking up in verse 1. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Mm. This refusal to give your daughter to a Benjamite is something that we would have supported if we had not properly prayed about it. (laughs) The war on the tribe of Benjamin was necessary, directed by the Lord, and also devastating. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely eliminated because of this. Now, this may seem like a good thing, and it would have prevented Saul from ever being born, but it also would have prevented Mordecai from ever being born. Listen, the implications of our decisions are so important that we are not supposed to be the ones making the decision. They're supposed to come from Adonai and him alone. If there had been no tribe of Benjamin, where would that have left the future of the gospel? And I want you to think about that as we go to Philippians 3. Yeah, it's your turn in
5: there. Benjamites consistently represent a kind of charismatic figure <laughs> in yep. the literal sense of the term, not in the way that we use it in church sets. Overtly wicked, horrible, crappy people that sin against God and man or something truly extraordinary when that is harnessed for righteousness.
0: In other words, they're just like us.
5: (laughs) Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. (laughs) Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh Uh-oh. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Catch verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. God never asked Israel to forbid marriage to the tribe of Benjamin. It was a response to Benjamin's horribly wicked behavior. (laughs) It was a decision that was made in zeal. Without knowledge, based on the unbiblical behavior that they had witnessed. However, if they had not reconsidered their refusal that was not directed by the Lord, then there would have never been an apostle to the Gentiles named Paul.
7: Wow, wow. come on.
5: Consider the ramifications of that. Very little of what we do actually has to do with us. The Lord is always aiming at what will result in the generations ahead. It is time that we consult the Word of God and the Spirit of God, which will co-witness for each man what Adonai has determined, that he is to refuse or that he is compelled to do for righteousness yes. sake. During our time of booster shots and work mandates, it is supremely important that we get acquainted with both the courage of Mordecai and the wisdom of David Good word. to know what the Lord is telling you to do in a given situation. <laughs> These decisions are not a matter of looking at a drop-down menu, A, B, C, or D, of options or determining your convictions solely based on what your peers around you are doing. There's a reason that we're building teams that can seek the face of God together. Vashti refused to come to the king. That is rebellion, and it's actually a shadow and type of the Antichrist. Mordecai refused to bow towards Haman. That is the highest form of submission to God. Amen. Come on. Yeah. How is it that the same action is both depravity and righteousness in its most excellent form? Mm-hmm. It's because it must be directed by the Lord according to his word. Amen. That's good. Your next refusal, Christian, should be made understanding both possibilities
0: but being divinely directed. Before we pick up in our text again, I want to assure you it's not just about COVID mandates. It's It's... It's not just about those things. It really is about our propensity to make a drop-down list about how we're going to handle everything from our feelings on self-defense to alcohol, to where we live, to how we live. You go, "Oh, well, this is this is just me." Well, you better make sure that the Lord set the conviction because it affects how everybody coming after you yeah. lives. It these are actually more important decisions than you think they are. And some of you think we're just playing the safe road, but you're actually in an unbiblical position. Yeah. You need to know for sure that God is telling you to refuse to kill or to refuse to let somebody live. You need it. Your rules are not God's rules. And some of you are so bound up in this that you're a pretty poor example in a lot of ways. But the thing is, is we're maturing. We're maturing in the way that we interact with God's word. (laughs) We're maturing in the way that we interact with each other. And we want to be within biblical norms, but they are not simply biblical rules that have ironclad concrete barriers on either side, and no man does anything other than another man does. One man, God might have a specific reason He wants him to take a booster shot and get on a plane and go somewhere. Someone else, he might want to fake the vaccine card. You'll have to work those things out in your own conscience and in the word of God and know for sure that your position was determined by God and not simply by your family history, which can be idolatrous, not by your feelings of self-righteousness, not by feelings of comparison with your peers, Did God set your conviction? I'm a man of convictions. Some of them have turned out to be wrong. Every time that's the case, it's because God didn't set it. I did. Now's a season in your life where you need to determine why you set your convictions where you did and if they're God. Things that you think work in your marriage will not work in your children's marriage and they're not really working for you either. You just don't know it. It's time that we grow into maturity and actually wrestle with these things until you know where God tells you to stand. Amen. Otherwise, you just think in any given scenario of bowing, the Bible says refuse. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And we're going to have to come to grips with that. Would you like to move forward in our text? Yeah. As we pick back up in our text, it should be noted that at the end of verse 4, it's the first time in Esther that it indicates that Mordecai's nationality has become known. It literally says, for he
2: told them he was a Jew. Linton, <laughs> let's get verses 5 and 6.
6: When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Ooh. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were... Mm. He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes.
2: Okay, so last week we told you that Esther's actions in this book were universally received and that her nationality was not known. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Mordecai's nationality was known and his actions are widely panned. This gives us a basis for a blind test of motives. In verse 6, Haman wants to kill all Jews, supposedly based on the actions of one Jew. This is a false premise. His real motivation was revealed as far back as the Gentile prophet Balaam. You guys want to hear that? Yeah. Listen to numbers 24 verses 17 through 20. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Yes, it will. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob. And destroy the survivors of the city. Then Balaam saw Amalek and uttered his oracle. Amalek was first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at last. Amen. There have been many Haman-like proxies of Satan through the centuries, and none of them have been honest about their true motives. The true motive is that God chose one nation on earth to bring about his kingdom and all others will come to ruin. The Gentile nations know this to be true on a visceral level. And it is from that place that all hatred of Jews actually emanates. Psalm 83 actually puts this quite well. Right, you guys still with us
4: tonight? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm it's 26
0: read. minutes. You can rouse
2: yourself for
4: 26. Rouse. Slap your neighbor and tell him wake up. Come on. Final countdown. I'm going to read all of Psalm 83, and as I when I'm done reading this, Pastor Judah Ben Eric is going to expound on it. Uh oh. Yehuda Ben Eric. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Psalm 83. Oh God. Do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God. Be not still. See how your enemies are astir, how your foes fear their heads, rear their heads. With cunning, they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Mm. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation. That the name of Israel be remembered no more. Wow. With one mind, they plot together. Mm. They form an alliance against you. Mm. the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarites, Gibal, Ammon, and Amalek. Whoa, Philistia, with the people of Tyre, even Assyria has joined them to the link uh, to, the, to lend strength to the descendants of Lot, Selah. Think about it. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, or Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like refuse on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession of their pasture lands of God, of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, O my God, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, or a flame sets the mountains ablaze, so pursue them with your tempest, and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, so that men will seek your name, O Lord. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Yeah. So first importance, we want to assure you
5: that Adonai will indeed answer this yeah, song. Yeah, will. Come yeah. on. Yeah. It is a prayer, a request, yeah. and he has heard it. Amen. Second, we want to you to guard yourselves from all forms of hatred towards the Jewish people. Hear me, Christian. Hatred that seems to be based on the actions of an individual Jew. Mm. You may not be able to discern where your true feelings are coming from. Wow. It is simple. If you love the Jewish Messiah, then you must love his people as he does. Come on. Whether their actions merit it or not. Do you guys know that Purim was this last week? Yeah. 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 Well, we will see the great deliverance of the Jews later in our studies of Esther, You should also understand that the day of Purim continues to be a day of great deliverance, even up to this point. We have a slide to show you a couple of those events in modern histories. It's titled, Thwarted Plans on Purim in Modern Times. In the early 1950s, Joseph Stalin had bloody plans for dealing with the Jewish problem in the USSR. Just as things were reaching a crisis point in 1953, he suddenly became paralyzed. You know when? On Peru. Delivered. He died four days later. <laughs> In 1990, Saddam Hussein of Iraq invaded nearby Kuwait. As pressure ramped up from the international community, his army began firing scud missiles into Israel. After US-led forces attacked Iraq, they were quickly victorious, and the hostilities ended specifically on Purim, Guys, this is something that God has taken note of and is a pattern of deliverance that will continue through the end.
0: Amen. Real quick, a note, because we have 22 minutes and we we do want to get to a few other things. Those of you that have wondered, like, but this is not a biblical feast. You're wrong. (laughs) It's recorded in Esther. It's a biblical feast. You said, no, no, this was man-initiated and it was not God-initiated. No, it's the bride of God. Initiated, And it's what he always wanted in his people. And he endorses it. And uh, where we have a bride that will not come to him in the first chapter, we have a bride that does come to him, obtains his wisdom, and does it through Mordecai. And what she and Mordecai wrote to the people has turned out in history to be endorsed by God. He's always wanted you to participate in his rule and his reign. He's always wanted your actions to reflect his. Don't get hung up on the fact that he didn't give this one to Moses. He gave it to Moses' descendants, and they gave it to us. Don't get hung up on the way that Jews practice it today. It's uh, often a little better than Halloween. In biblical times, they drank a little too much, which they thought was for the purpose of lowering inhibitions. It's a practice that you know, has some merit to it. And they valued telling the truth. And they celebrated deliverances and were honest about their actions that caused captivities. Okay? If you study Jewish culture that is biblical Jewish culture, it's extremely enlightening. It's just hard to do from a Southern Baptist point of view that places your culture above God's. It causes you to misread everything in the Bible. Wow. Let's pick up in verse 7.
6: In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of the sun, they cast the period. Yeah. That is the lot. In the presence of payment to select a day and a month, and the lot
0: fell on the twelfth month in the month of a dog. So we're gonna drop some bombs on you and we're gonna do it in rapid fashion. <laughs> Esser two sixteen says that it was the seventh year of Xerxes' reign during the second chapter. We're now in the third chapter in the seventh mm. verse, and it's the twelfth year of his reign. Mm. That means that Xerxes and Esther have been queen and king together for almost five years. You don't pick that up unless you're carefully paying attention to the dates. We tell you that this is to emphasize that he was still unaware she was Jewish. So I imagine he knew where every little mold and freckle was on her body, but he did not know her nationality. Well, that serves to show as a blind test. That what is occurring, as Mordecai is hated because of his nationality, and Esther is loved because her nationality is not known, it shows you how irrational this behavior is. Okay? Also, did you catch what month this is taking place in? The very time that a plan for the annihilation of God's people is being formulated is the month that the Jewish people celebrate their Passover in the time when death passes them over. Mm -hmm. Does that add any emotion to your reading of this text? How often is it, dear Christian, that at the very moment the enemy is planning your destruction, God is saying to you, start celebrating your deliverance. Let my word be true and every man be a liar. We've had more reports of cancer and every other devilish thing They've just been washed away in the redemption of the Lord. But it all starts with not refusing to come to him in your difficulties. Hmm. Hey, throwing a dice or casting the poor may seem like a random act of chance. We want to assure you that it's not. (laughs) Okay? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the the Lord. As you consider this, the month that the poor fell on, When they rolled their little dice, they had evidently rolled a 12. If it had fallen in Iyar, which was the second month, then the people wouldn't have had any time to prepare for the coming destruction, any time to arm themselves, any time to wait to see God and how he would deliver them. But Adonai determined that they would have 12 months to observe his method of delivering them. Even the dice that were cast, they're, they're proof of his providence. Why don't we pick up in verse 8?
6: Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the
8: peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom Hmm.
6: whose customs
8: are different from those of all
6: the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury, For the men who carry out this business.
2: Wow. So the actual basis of hatred towards God's people. It's always the same. It is that they are chosen. And that they are distinct because of their love and loyalty to God's law. In short, their customs are different from those of all other people. You know, anywhere Jews are persecuted. It's actually proof that they are a distinct People, yeah. blessed are you, though, when you are reviled and persecuted, Matthew five ten and 11 tell us. Haman's proposed contribution, it's staggering. Yeah, you need to hear this. Some have actually estimated that it was the equivalent to two-thirds. Somebody say two-thirds. Two-thirds. Of all of the silver that the Persian Empire acquired, On an annual basis. Saying 10,000 talents was two-thirds of the 15,000 talents that was the yearly acquisition of the whole Persian Empire. And that's not a guess. We have it in actual historical records that we're just not taking the time to share with you. This statistic actually raises the question of how Haman had or could obtain that much silver. Mm -hmm. If history is any indication it's likely that he planned to confiscate it from all the Jews in the empire that he was planning to murder. But there's also another interesting possibility, and Peyton is going to take us through that one. A really interesting
0: possibility. Really really interesting. interesting. A likely possibility.
1: Hmm.
4: It is
0: the right answer.
4: Okay, it's right. So this historical reference, called the Pythias Incident. Hmm. Another interesting incident... One that allows some speculation as to the individual character of Xerxes himself occurred while he was in the region of Lydia. There, he and his followers were magnificently entertained by Pythias, the son of Atis. Yeah. It. Who was, yeah, my Persian is muy poquito. <laughs> who, was only, who was second only to Xerxes in his wealth. Whoa, wow. He received the king personally and willingly offered to supply money to help fund the invasion. Impressed, Xerxes asked how much wealth Pythias had to offer. And Pythias answered honestly. When he had done so, Xerxes replied how pleased he was that Pythias had offered uh, what Pythias had offered. He being the only man to have offered any private means to the Persian cause. And rather than taking the gold offered him, Xerxes actually gave money to Pythias instead, naming him a friend of the king. So, after giving careful thought to the subject, we think this is the most likely motivation for Haman to have offered such a sum. We don't think he actually had it, though. <laughs> He was either planning on taking it from the dead bodies of the Jews or he was simply making a wild boast in the, hopes that based on Xerxes, in the hopes that based on Xerxes' generosity, he would be rewarded. Like Pythias. Just like Pythias. He had ulterior motives. You remember when Xerxes was going in the
0: second Persian invasion that we talked about last week where yes. we have the Bible of Thermopylae and all of those things? Uh-huh. The only guy to have offered to help fund the effort was rewarded handsomely with more money than he previously had. That was a famous story in Persia that we think Haman knew. And that's why he's making the offer of a generous amount of money.
4: So it seems to us that everything that Haman does is in his own interest and for his own self-promotion.
5: Why, oh, why don't we read verse 10 and 11 and see what happens? Yeah, we got to finish it.
6: <laughs> so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of the Admetathah, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep
5: the money, the king said to Haman, <laughs> and do with these people as you please. The response of Xerxes indicates that he was not particularly invested in what he probably saw as only a minor detail in a very, very large empire. (laughs) However, Haman's anticipation of Xerxes' generosity was at least half right. While Haman was not financially rewarded in that moment for a satanic stratagem, he was given more authority, and if he was able to carry out the plot, then the king wasn't interested in keeping the money. So who would have gotten to keep it? Why don't we go ahead and pick up in verse 12, Linton, and get us all the way to verse 15. Then on the 13th day of the first royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out
6: in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors
1: of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself
6: and sealed with his own, own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers
1: to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate
6: all the Jews. Wow. Young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king
0: and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. All right. With ten minutes left, we're going to go into rapid, sewed slinging. Oh, yeah. The king did not personally issue the decree. He rather permitted it by allowing Haman to act and to use his name. We think this fits nicely with the book of Job. In the end, for Satan and for Haman, this will be their undoing. Okay. You catch that? Yeah. When you consider that the Persian Empire was larger than the United States, you should probably think of these messengers going out as apostles of death, going to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the entirety of the biblical world. That's somewhat ironic, since it was Jewish apostles of life that brought the message of salvation to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. The fruit of the Jewish nation is rarely put in this kind of context by those that malign the nation. And far too often it's Christians that are maligning the nation of Israel. That decree to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, sounds to us very much like John ten ten. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that we may have life. And have it to the full. The Jewish Messiah and the Jewish nation are messengers of life. What has consistently come out of the Gentile oppressive empires is destruction, killing, and attempted annihilation of the very people that Adonai has used to save the world. The book you have in your hands, it's Jewish. It needs to be noted that this action against God's people left the city of Susa in confusion and bewilderment. That was the last line of the chapter. When we come to chapter 8 in verse 15, when this is resolved, the salvation of the Jewish people explicitly causes the very same city to become joyous. Christian, when you act in defiance of God's order or his plan, it will always leave your home in a state of confusion and bewilderment, whether you're the husband or the wife or the child. When you act in accordance with God's plan and order, it will always bring joyous celebration to your whole home. And that's true at every level of God's authority. At this point, I think we're going to turn it over to the pastors.
7: pull up Psalm 144 and verse 2. Psalm 144 verse 2. He is my, what kind of God? Loving God. Loving God. And my fortress. fortress. My stronghold and my... Oh, that was kind of apathetic. (laughs) My there we go. My shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people's underneath. Look, you heard it in the last words that uh, Pastor Eric said. When we are acting in accordance with God's right order, (coughs) we then have the ability to have a joyous celebration. Of his, of his salvation, of his deliverance, of his right order being in our home. Man, isn't that where we want to have a joyous celebration? Yes. Yes. That can only happen whenever you are acting in God's right order. So just think about that for a moment. The importance of right order in your home is that it brings about a joyous celebration for homes around you. It gives hope. It gives direction. It gives life. It gives purpose to why we are a body. So as these great biblical jewels that these guys have given us tonight, uh, as you're contemplating them, let them settle down into your soul. Let them stir and agitate the depths of the way that you think, the way that you feel, but more importantly, the way that you act. Mm -hmm. Because we are a body that needs
0: each other
7: and need the shalom of each other as well as inside of our own home. Stand to your feet.
3: Let's pray. Mighty God, we love you. Lord, we are people who ever want to fall more in love with your law, with your word. Lord, you have called the men and the women in this room to a life that is full, but that can only be done as we actually follow your word. Lord, may we have no more drop-down menus on our decisions in our lives. God, may we go to your word and allow your word to penetrate us, Lord, and to move inside of us, Lord, to reform us, to revive us, to cause us to be in accordance with your will, mighty one. Lord, that we would be able to redeem the family lives that we have come from, ignoble as they may be, because we are people who value your word. Lord, may we come and be like Mordecai. May we be like Esther, Lord, choosing to follow you above our own thoughts, above our own feelings, Lord, and that our actions would reflect lives that are full of the life, full of the word that you give. Lord, that we might be able to combat. Lord, that enemy that is out to steal and kill and destroy even the life that you are trying to bring into this household and the households of this church, Lord. We love you and we honor you, Lord. We want to fall more in love with your law each and every day, putting it into practice, putting away our own thoughts, Lord, that we might glorify you with our lives and the lives of our children and in the lives of our generations, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.